Thank you. Thank you. It's always so sweet to be back. I feel like it's coming home as we drive up from you know, Milwaukee or wherever we are and past these towns that we originally couldn't pronounce, you know. In fact, we were driving down uh, Shano, and I remember the first Sunday ever here, I was telling somebody, oh yeah, we were near Shawano or something like, it's Shawano. I'm like, okay, okay, I got that one now. So no, it's sweet to be back and uh, we really do. We, we feel like as we see people we know and love and, uh, and connect with, um, it feels like coming home. And so thank you for having us. Um, my wife is here and my uh, two daughters, Keelan and Naya and Judah. And uh, if you knew us from before, you'll have to see them. They're much bigger than they were. And uh, we'll be out in the kind of atrium area afterwards um, to just see anybody who um, cares to swing by. We'd love to see you. And then tomorrow night, uh, we're having just a gathering for anybody who wants to come um, here at the church. And so we'll be in room 306, I think is what it's called. We'll have pizza. And if you want to come and, uh, and say, hey, find out what's happening uh, with us and with the ministry in Colorado um, or about torchbearers in general. And I want to explain, explain real quickly what torchbearers are. Uh, we have 26 different centers around the world. Uh, most of them are Bible schools. Many of them in English. Some are not in English. Some are in different languages. But many are in English. And uh, what, what the heart of the ministry is for people to take a, a year out, and often that's a year between uh, high school and college. Sometimes it's a year in the middle of college, after college. Maybe it's a year after your kids have gone off and you're retired, but to take a year out to, to dig into the Word and come to know Christ better and, and the heart of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. And it's such a sweet blessing for us as a family um, to be able to walk through life uh, with, at Timberline, 38 students every year and, uh, and just journey through knowing Christ and, uh, and the hard things about life. Um, so it's sweet, and we'd love to tell you more about it. I'd uh, love to give you information. So feel free to come out there. Feel free to come tomorrow night at 6 o'clock. Um, when I was talking to Troy about speaking this weekend, he shared that you guys are studying through the book of Ecclesiastes, which uh, was, was interesting. I actually really enjoy the book. It's a challenging book, as you guys have probably seen if you've been here. I have the privilege of teaching it at about two times a year to our students uh, at Timberline as well as some students at a different school. And uh, some years I finish teaching it and, and studying it and I feel like I understand it more. Other years I finish and I feel like I understand it less. And so as I share, and it was sweet to hear uh, Troy and Bobby's past messages, uh, it's going to be, here's the word, here's what it says, and, and really I'm asking that the Lord would just speak clearly uh, the truth from, from the text. One of the things as I think about Ecclesiastes, and uh, when I teach it at, at, at Timberline uh, and in Colorado, uh, I am often reminded of Green Bay Community. And if you know the book, it's a little depressing, and that's not why I remember Community, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, I remember it because about probably eight or nine years ago, Community did a number of trips down to Louisiana for um, Hurricane Katrina relief. Do any, any of you guys remember that? Anybody here back then? And, and if you remember, there was a time after we'd done a couple trips down there where a pastor from Louisiana came up here. And I see some heads nodding. Some of you guys remember it. It's awesome that there's a number of people here who weren't even around the church at that time. That's so sweet. 
But he came up here and he shared on, on kind of Louisiana, what was going on, the Katrina uh, stuff. And as he was sharing, he was talking about how initially there was so many people just diving in and everybody was helping each other. But as time went, there was a point where things started to change. And, and people went from helping each other to hurting each other. And he asked this question of the congregation, and, and those of you guys who are here may remember this question. He asked this question of the congregation. If we can get this to work. Do I need to push a different button? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> okay, I might need you to forward it manually up there. Oh, there, that's not the one I wanted. There you go. There's the question. If, if somebody wants to come and fiddle with this, you can. Um, the question is, what's the worst question that you can ask in life? And, and this is the question that the pastor posed. What is the worst question you can ask in life? And those of you guys who are here maybe remember him asking that question. And, and I want you to think about it for a second. What is the worst question that you can ask in life? When I talk about it with our, our college students at Timberline, I'll ask, often say, you know, what's the worst question? They'll raise their hand, you know, how pregnant are you? You know, and then they find out you're not. And it's like, oh, no, that's, that's a bad question. But it's not the worst. It, it's bad. It's close. It's not the worst question. You may remember the answer if you were here. And I love this because he said this was the turning point where things started going downhill after the hurricane. What's the worst question? You can ask in life, I'll just do this and you can know that I meant to click it. Um, the question is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? You ask that question in your family. Hey, what's in it for me? And you start ruining your family. You ask that question in a marriage. What's in it for me? And you start ruining your marriage. You ask that question in a dating relationship. And though it might work for a while, you'll ruin ruin that relationship. You ask that question in a church. Hey, what's in it for me? I'm here. What do I get out of this? And to be honest, you'll just start to destroy your church. As Solomon is wrestling through his life, as he's thinking through all that he has and all that he's gained, this, I believe, is one of the key questions he asks in Ecclesiastes. He starts in chapter 2, or chapter 1, um, verse 2, passage that was looked at the other week, he says, initially, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Utterly meaningless. And, and, and Troy showed that picture of a breath, and you can just imagine that, meaningless. It's like a breath, it's gone. Why does he come to that conclusion of life? I believe it's because of this next question in the next verse he has. Ecclesiastes 1, 2 and 3 what does man gain from all his labor which he toils under the sun? What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? In other words, the question is, what do I get out of all of this? What's in it for me? All this work, all this labor, all this just pushing and pushing, what do I get? And ultimately, as an old man looking back at his life, he says, meaningless, meaningless, everything. Is meaningless. You don't get anything. And I think the problem is the question he's asking. I mean, if you look at his younger life, if you look at him as a young boy, and God says, hey, you can have anything you want. What do you want? 
He gives them a kind of an open check, check to sign. How much do you want on there? What does Solomon say? Solomon is a child. He doesn't say, oh, I want money, I want fame, I want... He says, give me an understanding heart so that I'll know how to lead your people. As a child, as a young boy, his focus was not on himself. His focus was outwards. But as he's grown and as he's aged and as he's grown in wealth and power, that changed. And the question he asks now is, what does man get for all his work under the sun? As we've looked the last few weeks, we see that that plays out with pleasure. That's one of the main things we seek for in life. What do I get? You work hard, why? So you can have fun. So you can buy stuff to play with, to enjoy. I live in Colorado. People come to Colorado because of pleasure. Our town is filled with people who the only reason they live there is because they love the mountains. They love to ski. They love to bike. And I'll tell you, it's a dark place to live. Because when you live for pleasure, for what's in it for me, it eventually runs out and runs empty. And so pleasure's not the answer. And then he wrestled through, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's um, relationships he goes into. As, as Troy talked about last week. And, and even relationships, when the focus is what's in it for me, it destroys them. Bobby, two weeks ago, talked about time. And you look at the time we have left, and, and you look at the pain of life, and people's time coming sooner than you thought it should, and it leaves you empty. What do we get? What's it worth? Power, authority. I mean, you can go through all sorts of things that Solomon runs through. Today, we're going to look at chapters 5 and 6, where he moves from those things to, I, I believe, an area that, for us, can be one of the most challenging and the easiest to fall under when we're looking at this idea of what's in it for me. Go ahead and go to the next slide. What is it? It's money. Money. Solomon, probably the wealthiest man potentially who's ever lived. And as he looks at his wealth as an old man, he comes to the same conclusion. If my perspective is what do I get out of it, he says it's meaningless. It's interesting because we often use money as that kind of connector to what we get. From a young age, just yesterday, I was swimming with my daughter. I was actually not swimming. She was swimming. I was outside of the pool. They'd been swimming throughout the day at the house that we live at or that we're staying at, and, uh, and, and they'd taken a shower. They'd cleaned up. And, and my girls don't really like to shower. I mean, they're not dirty. They just, you know, got to wash your hair and all this stuff. So she had her hair nicely washed, clean, dried, but it came to the evening, and they wanted to go swimming again. And so she said, I'm going to go swimming, but I don't want to get my hair wet. And so she tied it up, you know, in a bun above her head. And she's playing around and sitting on a little inner tube. And I, I, I see her, and I say, hey, Keelan, I dare you to sit on that really, you know, unstable airplane floaty thing and see if you can float across the pool. And I knew that this was my chance. I, I'm going to see her flip over and get her hair wet, which is horrible that that's my motive, right? <laughs> and so she gets on. She takes the challenge. But before she goes, she says this. If I make it, will you give me a dollar? <laughs> if I make it, will you give me a dollar? You see, even at a young age, there's this mindset of, okay, I'll do it. I'll do the work. I'll do the labor. I'll take the challenge. But what do I get out of it? What's the outcome? How, how do I benefit from this? And of course, so much of our life is 
lived that way. Solomon comes to chapter 5 as he's wrestling through his life and he talks about money. Chapter 5, next slide, verse 8. He begins this discussion. He says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, don't be surprised at such thing. For one official is eyed by a higher one over them and both um, are other, and over both are higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. What is he saying? The idea here is he's just kind of laying out, here's the reality. When you, when you see things happen, and you probably have been on my side where you watch the news and you're like, I can't believe that just happened. Or you hear a story of someone being oppressed and hurt and, and treated unjustly. Like, how could they do that? Psalm says, don't be surprised. You see, here's how the world works. You've got levels of people, and if everybody's out for themselves, if everybody's trying to get something out of life, somebody's going to get the short end of the stick. It always happens. In, in the situation here, you've got somebody working the fields. That's probably the poor person. That's how it used to be back then, the laborer. They're in the fields, and let's say as they're working their fields, they, they harvest 20 portions of whatever the crop is that they're harvesting. 20 portions. And then all the way over in the palace is the king. He's at the top of the food chain. And the king says to his advisor, hey, I want 10 portions for my family and myself. 10 portions from that field. All right, the advisor says, 10 portions. But as he's thinking through, he's like, well, he wants 10. I better get five because I'm pretty high up there. And so when he goes to the person under him, he tells him, hey, I need 15 portions from that field. 10 for the king, five for myself. Well, that guy underneath says, well, 10 for the king, 5 for this guy, that's 15. I probably need something. How about 2 for me? And so he goes to the next guy. We need 17. And the next guy goes to the next guy. By the time it gets down to the farmer, there's nothing left. In fact, he maybe even owes on what these other guys want. And it's a simple concept, but it's how the world works. And it might be finances. It might be property. It might be, you know, power. The reality is... Everybody, when they're out for what they want, somebody or many people get the short end of the stick. And Solomon says, don't be surprised when you see people oppressed. That's what happens when you live this way. That's what he saw in his own life. Goes on to verse 10. He says, whoever loves money, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. I mean, isn't that true? It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. As you, things like money have this way of you want more, you want a raise. You think, hey, if I just had a little bit more, I, I'd, I'd be better off. I could handle these things. And it doesn't take long before you're saying the same thing again. Just a little more. Just a little more. Those who love money, they never have enough. It's interesting. In 1 Timothy... 1 Timothy, the next slide there, Jesus, actually it's Paul, mentions the same thing. Paul says this, For the love of money, thank you sir, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of evil. There's nothing wrong with money in itself. In fact, God talks about his, his wealth. He gave wealth to Solomon. But it was the love of money, the obsession with money, the putting money in the focus 
that is the root of all kinds of evil. And then he goes from there and he says, Some people, eager for money, wanting money, have wandered from the faith and even pierced themselves with many griefs. That it's not just that it doesn't work well, it actually hurts them. <laughs> and Solomon notices the same thing. Solomon, I don't have these passages up there, but he says this, verse 12. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Did you ever notice that? If you work really hard, you're sweating it out all day, you can eat very little and still sleep well because you're dead tired. But sometimes you get much and you're so stressed. You got to take care of it. Maybe it's a new car. Maybe it's a new computer, a new phone. And you have your new car and it's so shiny and it looks so good that you go to the grocery store and, and you're like, I'm parking way out there. I mean, the last thing you want is to park next to somebody who's going to you know, open their little five-year-old, open the door too hard. So you're parking way out in the boonies, hiking all the way to the grocery store and all the way out. Why? To protect what you have. And that's how life works. You get things. You, 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 you grow in your wealth. And, and again, it's not bad, but if that becomes the focus, all of a sudden we end up needing to spend more time to protect the things we have. And Solomon, as he's looking at all his wealth, I think he's worn out. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of what it means for me. Permitted no sleep. Verse 13, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Just like in 1 Timothy, there's a pain or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked for their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they carry in their hands. In other words, Solomon's saying, man, this life that we live, we work so hard to get stuff, to get wealth, but as an old man, he's realizing, when I die, I leave just as naked as I can, and I'm going to have nothing. And he is discouraged. Because again, his focus is what's in it for me. What do I get out of it? And his only conclusion is, this is just a waste of time. He summarizes this section in verse 16. He says, this too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain? What do they get? What's in it for me? Since they toil for the wind, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. I mean, he's pretty down. This is not encouraging stuff. <laughs> it's interesting, it's not just in business, but in the church as well. The first seven verses of this chapter talk about coming to the temple. And if you read it in the context, the idea seems to be, he, he says, be careful. It's a warning. Don't go to the temple of the Lord. Don't go to church thinking you can make a vow before God and not fulfill it. Not pay it off. The idea seems to be here, you go to the temple and, and you want something from God. Good crops, good harvest, good business. And you say, God, if you will bless me, then I will in turn give you some of my money. Give you some of the produce. Solomon says, be careful. In some ways, the mentality is the exact same. What's in it for me? 
And we can make that shift from business and life and commerce to God. And of course, we probably would rarely say, God, I'll give you money if you give me something, but it's pretty normal that we live our lives saying, God, I'll do this for you so that you do something for me. And again, we may not say it out loud, but so often we live by that truth. Solomon says it's empty. He goes on in chapter 6. You maybe thought he couldn't get any more depressing. He does. Chapter 6, he hits a new low. He says, I've seen another evil under the sun, verse 1, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. I think he's actually talking about himself here. That there's those who God has given so much to. And, and, and Solomon was in that boat. God had given Solomon so much, but though he had been given so much, they actually don't ever get to enjoy it. Somebody else gets to enjoy it. And it ends up leaving them empty. And as he hits the depths of his despair, he, used a, he uses a, a comparison that's almost hard to fathom. I, I mean, I wrestled through, do I really mention this in church? With a group of people who this specific thing could be extremely painful. And yet I realize that the reason he mentions this is he's, he's sharing the depth of the meaninglessness of chasing after wealth. And so I'll share it. It may be hard to hear. Here's what he says, verse 3. A man may have a hundred children and live many years. That's wealth in the Old Testament. Many sons to carry on your name. He may have a hundred children, live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, if he can't actually live in the goodness of what he has, and he does not receive a proper burial. Now, it was the son's responsibility to bury their father. And so this guy, though he has a hundred sons, if there's nobody to bury him, somehow, maybe it's through his desire for wealth, he's kind of isolated himself from relationships. He's distanced himself from people. And it says that if there's a man who has everything he could possibly want, Solomon, and yet in the end, he doesn't get to enjoy it, and he's isolating himself from relationships, and we see that in Solomon's life. He has nobody standing next to him at the end, not even his own son. What does he compare it to? He says this, I say that a stillborn child is better off than this man. It comes with darkness. Its name, um, and, in, and it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than this man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. I mean, Solomon, as he looks at life and he wrestles through this desire to seek wealth, he says, it is so meaningless. And this is from a man who had it all. Long in the, in the later years of his life. It's a warning for us. Because in his, when he was young, he lived it up. It was sweet. But as an old man, he recognized that it left him empty. He goes on, verse 7, everyone's toil is for their mouth yet their appetite is never satisfied. 
this kind of idea of we, we want more, we want more, we need more, but we're never satisfied. It reminds me of the song from John Mayer, Something's Missing, a guy who is extremely wealthy, had it all, and yet he sings this, I'm dizzy from the shopping malls. I've searched for joy, but I bought it all. And it doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown first to ever satiate. Something's missing and I don't know how to fix it. Something's missing and I don't know what it is at all. I mean, it sounds like right out of the pages of Ecclesiastes. This desire, this hunger, what's in it for me? And it leaves you empty. He concludes this section in verse 12 by saying, for who knows what's good for a person in life during the few, who knows what's good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun when they're gone? It's encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's like, really? How are you supposed to teach on that? It's interesting, as we look at these two chapters, which are dark and hard and painful, there's one section of hope. There's one glimmer of hope. I skipped over it. It's right in between chapters 5 and chapter 6. One glimmer of hope. Here's what he says, verse 18. He says, this is what I've observed to be good. He didn't say he tried it. He didn't say this is what I did. He said, as I've lived this life, wretched and old, had it all, but left empty, I saw something that was good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when one gives someone wealth, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This is the glimmer of hope. In the midst of this depressing two chapters, he says, there's one thing I've seen that actually is good. That there's some people who are content. There's some people who seem to be okay with what God gives them. And somehow those people actually find joy and peace in life. It's not some like amazing lights in the sky. Wow, that's so exciting. It's contentment. And yet I think there's something deep in there. Throughout the book, he keeps coming back to these contentment stanzas. This isn't the only place. But there's something about contentment that goes deeper than just a personality difference. Something deeper than just, oh, I'm going to choose to be content today. You see, when you become content with what God gives you, you say, God, I'm going to take what you've given me and I'm going to just accept it as it's from you. And as you learn to be content, which is so hard, oh, I struggle with that. As you learn to be content, you begin to be content not just with God, what God has given you, but you learn to be content with what God will give you. You know what that's called? It's called faith. It's called trust. I'm not saying you're apathetic. You don't sit back and, you know, I'm not going to get a job. I'm just going to be content with what God brings. No. 
No, you work. You do what he's given you to do. You follow your passions. If he's given you vision, you follow that vision. There were incredible visionaries who love the Lord and yet have incredible amounts of contentment. Because as you're a visionary, you pursue it. You do what you're supposed to do, and you say, God, whatever you make happen is your business. I'm responsible to respond to what you've given me, my skill set, my family to take care of. I'm going to go out. I'm going to work hard. And whatever you bring, I'm going to live with in contentment. And at the heart of it is trust, is faith. It's amazing when you look at this idea of contentment. I think of this idea of a glove. Most of our lives we spend grabbing for things. We're in control. And we're taught that from a young age, elementary school. Go get it. Have some ambition. You know, get what your dreams are. Work your way up the, the ladder of business. Are those bad things? No. If it's with contentment. But we have this mindset that we're the hand. This idea of contentment is saying, I'm done with being the hand. I'm willing to be the glove. I'm done with being the one who drives my life. I'm willing to allow God to drive my life and take me along for the journey. And if he wants to take me to wealth and fame, then I'll let him take me there and I won't complain at what happens when I get there. Or if he wants to have me not have wealth, to have to struggle it out, working a hard job and long hours. If that's what he wants, I'll live with contentment in what he's given me. And we should make this shift from being the driving force in our life to being the following force in our life. Sure, God gives us vision. God gives us direction. But as we step out, we say, God, I'm in your hands anyway. I'm just the glove. You're the hand. The greatest example of that, obviously, is Jesus Christ. I mean, you look at Jesus, the God of the universe, equal to the Father and the Son. He was a hand in heaven, powerful God. And yet Philippians says that he emptied himself and became a man. He became a glove. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, emptied himself and became a glove and chose to live like a glove, like a man, like a human, not Superman, not Wonder Woman, like you and like me. Jesus lived like a human being during the 33 years of life that he lived here, simply following the direction of the Father and saying, I'm content with whatever you want to do in my life, even if it means my death and rejection from the world. And he was content. It's an incredible thing. I had a friend growing up whose dad um, sold medical supplies. And in their garage, they had all these wheelchairs. And we would go there, and we'd, we'd, we'd hang out, and we'd go in the garage, and we'd get these wheelchairs, and we'd go out, and he had a basketball court in the parking lot. And I remember we'd get in these wheelchairs, and we'd say, okay, for the next half an hour, we're playing basketball, and every, nobody can walk. We have these rules. Sure, could we still walk? Of course we could. I had my legs. But the rule during this period of time was that we were going to live as if we could not walk and never function outside of that. When Jesus came down as a man, he said, did he stop being God? Of course he didn't stop being God. 
But for those 33 years, he said, I will live on this earth as a man, as a glove, being used by God for whatever he wants. Not his ambition. You know, Jesus didn't have selfish ambition. Did you know Jesus didn't come because he loves you? Does Jesus love you? Of course he does. You know the verse, most famous verse in the world. For Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself, right? No. It's for God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus' motivation on earth was not his love for you, though he loves you. His motivation was the Father loves you. And I am a glove in the Father's hand. And if however the Father wants to love the world is the way I will be used to love the world, even if it means my death. You read through, and I'm running out of time like I did last service. I got halfway through last service. I'm going to get less than halfway through this service. You read through, it's incredible to see what Jesus says. I mean, Solomon said wealth is like this food that we can't get enough of. It, we can't, we, we can't, we always, we're always hungry for more. You know what Jesus said his food was when talking to the woman at the well? John chapter 4, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. To not be the hand, to be the glove. To be content with whatever the Father wants. That's his food, and to finish his work. I remember the first time I read this passage, it blew me away. John 5, 19. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son, Jesus, can do nothing of himself. What? But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. The Son, Jesus, the Bible says, he, Jesus says, I can do nothing as a man. Because he was like that me in a wheelchair. Yeah, I could walk, but not during that game. Jesus was God, but not while he was on earth. He chose to live as a man. Never stopping being God, but to live as a man, filled with the power of God, humble and surrendered to what God wanted, content with wherever it led. And of course, it led to death. It led to the cross. Jesus goes on to even say the words he says, the words he speaks, he doesn't speak on his own initiative, but the Father tells him what to say. Peter, looking back at Jesus' life in Acts 2.20, 2.22, he says, Jesus, the person who you saw do all these miracles, which God did through him in your midst. Did you know Jesus never did a miracle? Jesus never did a miracle on his own initiative. He was just a glove. Sure, there was a lot of miracles done through Jesus. That's what Acts 2.22 says. Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's how I do these things. Here's what's amazing. Here's what is so amazing about the Christian life. Right after Jesus says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, you know what he says? I am in the Father, the Father is in me, and I am in you, and you are in me. Jesus says, greater works than I have done, you will do, because I go home to the Father. You see, Jesus came to live this life as a glove to show us what the Christian life is supposed to look like. The God of the universe, the Father, living in a human form in Jesus Christ. And now that's transferred to us. When you accepted Christ, you didn't just get, you know, a card, like a YMCA club card to say, sweet, I get to go to heaven. You got that, but so much more. He gave you his life. He said, I am giving you my life so that you can be used 
in this world just as my son Jesus was used in this world because I am in you and you are in me. John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what he said about himself. (laughs) But with him, we can bear much fruit. You see, we so often miss it. We can miss it. We miss the gospel. And, And as Solomon's talking about wealth, it's one of those places that makes it so easy to miss it because we get kind of caught up in the things of this world. And in doing things right and saving money well and, and our ambition and these things. And it's so sneaky because it seems so good. And yet we forget to be content. To say to God, God, I am yours. I'm not mine anymore. What do you want to do? I mean, Solomon, young boy, saying, give me a discerning heart, understanding heart. And yet in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, He comes to this place of such frustration and anger as he looks at his wealth and he realizes he's about to die. And he says, it is so meaningless. I've hit a point of despair because all that I've earned and labored for is going to go to someone who didn't have to work at all for it. And that just makes me so mad. It's meaningless. Do you see the contrast to the gospel? Do you see the contrast with that way of thinking that says, what's in it for me? What can I get out of it? To the gospel? Solomon couldn't stand that he labored so that those who didn't labor would get what he worked for. Jesus came because we couldn't work for it and he wanted us to have it. The Father sent Christ to live the perfect life, to labor for us so that by simply saying, we'll take it, thank you, We can have what he labored for without needing to do the work ourselves. It was a gift from God. And that's the gospel. That he gave us not just salvation, but he actually gave us his life. Like a hand with a glove. And yet we spend so much time kind of ripping the glove off and trying to do our own thing. And we wonder why the church isn't more alive in America. We wonder why college students leave the church when they go to school. Because so often, as the church, we just become a a new lifestyle. Good morals, great principles, good stewards with our money. Good things, but it's not life. Doesn't compete to parties and drugs and good times. But I'll tell you, when you meet somebody, who when you see them, you're like, whoa, what's wrong with you? You're so content, and and I don't understand it. Because life is hitting you, and you're hurting, and I understand that, but somehow in the midst of your pain, you're okay. And have vision saying, God, I'm yours. It's Sunday. I'm leaving here. And I have my agenda of what I want to do this afternoon, but God, I'm not mine, I'm yours. It's not about me, it's about you. I'm a glove, you're the hand, what do you want to do? And maybe he lets you do what you wanted to do. Sweet, you enjoy it. Maybe he's got something different. Maybe your car's going to break down because there's somebody to talk to. Maybe your car's going to break down because you need to show your family, your kids, what Christ looks like when life goes bad. (laughs) 
I don't know what it is. But I have to wrestle with myself. Am I missing it? As the band comes up and we get ready to respond with communion, I want you to think about the question. I want us to wrestle through as we come to the cup and the bread that represents Jesus' life. Not just the ticket to heaven, which amazingly it is, but it represents his life given to you, for you, for the world, through you. Have you missed it? Have we, have we gotten too caught up in something in our lives? And, and maybe we haven't missed it for long, but we've slid away. And we're missing it. Come to the cup and say, God, I'm sorry. Sorry I missed it. I, I want to remember that my life is now filled with your life for your work. And I'm going to be content, as hard as it might be. Or maybe you never even understood that. Maybe you thought it was just a ticket to heaven. Sweet, today's the day you realize you got way more out of the deal than you thought. <laughs> you got God, his life. Or maybe you've never even come to the place of saying, you did all that work for me and I didn't have to earn it? Then come to communion and praise the Lord and say thank you. Because he had no problem with laboring for you. It wasn't about what he could get. It was about the love of the Father through the Son to bring us back to him and bring him back to us. Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us your life, that you have called us to something so much greater than a list of moral uh, rules to follow. Lord, in this painful, hard world we live in, help us to learn. Give us the gift of contentment, Lord, to trust you for what's come and what's to come. In your name, amen.